Well, I love history. I love to study history. I love learning about the past and people in the past, you know, notable events and places and characters. And of course, uh, the more that you look into history, the more you will notice certain dates repeatedly showing up in history books and on uh, timelines of significant events and stories about the past, right? We've, we've talked about this here before. If I say to you, a date which will live in infamy, you think of what date? December 7th, 1941. If I say Black Tuesday, the great Wall Street crash, I'm going to date you guys. Now, what, what year do you think of? 1929. 1929. If I say, uh, students, right, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, what year do you think of? 1492. It's the year Christopher Columbus landed in what is now the Bahamas. If I say the signing of the Declaration of Independence, you think of what year? 1776. And if I say the terrorist attacks on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, you think of what date? September 11, 2001. See, these are dates that are etched into our minds because they represent events so significant that they've had a profound effect on shaping human history. And in each case, they've permanently changed the course of untold numbers of people's lives. But on this day, each year, we commemorate a moment in history that didn't simply change the course of people's lives, it completely defined the lives of billions of people for all of eternity. And it's still doing that every single day. In fact, there is no other event in all of human history that even comes close to the impact and implication of this date in our history, which is why this day should be etched into the minds of every follower of Jesus Christ, because the events of that first week of April of AD 33 changed the fabric of eternity. It was a cataclysmic shift in the means by which mankind would forevermore be able to relate to an almighty God. Before that fateful day, humanity was so horribly separated from God that specially chosen priests would have to continually make atonement for the sins of mankind so as to stay the wrath of God that we'd earned by our sin against him. And so the relationship between God and man was only as strong as the next sacrifice, the next ceremony which was dependent upon this priest getting every detail correct on our behalf. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus comes to the earth and he changes all of that. In fact, in that first week of April, when he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross on our behalf, and then in an instant, by his sacrificial death, the veil of sin that separated mankind from God was torn in two and we were given access to our creator once again by grace through faith in Christ. That atonement, that death which we celebrate on Good Friday, last Friday, was the event that sealed the new covenant between us and God. The death of Christ, the shedding of his blood made atonement for our sins, all of our sins. Once and for all, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you'll ever commit in the future 
you understand, was paid for in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. And the only response required of us to receive that new covenant is placing our faith in Christ, which means not only believing in him, by the way, but also repentance for our sins. That's part of our faith. And then taking up our own cross, Jesus said, dying to our own will in deference to his, and then following him. That's what it means to place our faith in Christ. We repent of our sins and we follow him. Why? Because we believe now that he is who he says he is. And again, that atonement, the salvation part that is available to us today, the new covenant was made possible by his death on the cross. And we talked about that last Sunday. But there's more, you see, because God knew that from Jesus' atoning death on the cross forward, there would be men and women who would demand proof that Jesus had indeed conquered death and fulfilled the law and ushered in this new covenant because God could have simply called Jesus home, right, after his death to live with him in heaven. And of course he did do that, but not until after Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, when Jesus walked out of a tomb and went to visit his friends several more times for about 40 days before leaving this earth back to the Father. And so it wasn't that he accomplished his atoning work on Resurrection Sunday because that had already happened by his death on the cross, but that atoning work was validated by his resurrection. Because if he'd stayed dead, then death would have overcome him, just as it had with mankind before him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So we know the resurrection was necessary to validate his work on the cross, but again, he, he could have been... He could have been resurrected without ever appearing to anyone here on the earth, right? He could have simply gone back to heaven without anyone seeing him, but he didn't. No, instead he came back here for 40 days to be certain that those who knew him saw him and talked with him and ate with him and had communion with him and walked with him and touched him and watched him perform miracles. All of the things they'd done with Jesus before his death. You see, Resurrection Sunday was not only about a resurrection, it was also about evidence for us for our benefit, so that we could testify to those who have yet to believe that Jesus was no mere man. Not simply some religious zealot or popular cult leader who died and stayed dead like every other religious figure in history has, by the way. No, through his resurrection, Jesus was and still is the living, breathing Son of God. See, this is a date in history like no other because this is the day that Jesus proved to the world that he was in fact God in the flesh and that not even death could keep him from saving us. And so today, we're celebrating the life of Christ, the life that we have living inside of us if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to point out some of the significant proofs that Jesus offered to his friends then and to us now on what is the greatest date, without question, in all of history, 33 AD, the resurrection of the Christ. So let's turn together, if you have your Bibles, to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll put it on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible with you. Chapter 24, and we're going to read through this chapter together. 
And we'll stop along the way to examine some of this evidence that proved that Jesus was far more than just a man. And as the chapter opens up, we see at least five women, including Mary Magdalene, going to the tomb where Jesus was buried three days earlier with spices. They probably had ointment as a treatment for the body of Christ, which was part of their Jewish tradition and burial. And of course, when they arrive, they get quite a surprise. Let's read it together. Luke 24, starting with the first 12 verses. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter... Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So these ladies go to the burial site of Jesus, and of course he's not there. And these two angels show up and explain to them that he's actually alive and well. And so they go back, of course, and they tell the disciples who aren't buying it. Right? Aside from the fact that it sounds like a tall tale, women in the first century were not considered to be credible witnesses. So most of the disciples, at least most of them, dismissed their report. And yet it was at least a compelling enough story to Peter to cause him to not only go to the tomb, but verse 12 says he ran to the tomb. And of course Peter finds it empty as well, along with the empty grave cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. And highlights the first and really one of the most significant aspects of his resurrection, okay? As a result of the resurrection of the Christ, death became an empty promise. In fact, every proof, every shred of evidence that could possibly be used to prove that Jesus remained deceased came up empty, right? The cross that he was crucified on was empty. The tomb that he was buried in was empty. The grave clothes that he was wrapped in were empty. Every single place that one could point to to try and produce a dead body was empty. There was no body. And of course, that was all for our benefit, you see. So that human beings could testify to other human beings that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, right? Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away so that he could get out of the tomb. In John chapter 20, both in verses 19 and verse 26, we see Jesus either walking through walls to where the disciples were, or he was miraculously translated there, or at the very least, the locked doors were miraculously opened. In several places, including Luke 24, 31, we see Jesus vanish from the presence of the disciples. And of course, we saw Philip, uh, the deacon, supernaturally translated from one location to another back in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. The, the point is, the stone being rolled away from the tomb wasn't for Jesus' benefit. 
It was for hours. So that his friends could walk into that tomb and see for themselves that he was gone. And therefore give a first-hand account of the empty tomb. Likewise, the burial clothes. Jesus could have walked out of that tomb and thrown those linen cloths anywhere. In the bushes. In a stream. They could have simply disappeared. But he leaves them there. It's a strong indicator also, by the way, that the body wasn't stolen as the Jews had tried to claim because someone stealing a body would never unwrap the linens from it first. But Jesus leaves them there. Not only does he leave them in the tomb, John 27 describes the cloth that was on Jesus' face as being folded up in a place by itself in the tomb. So he takes the time to take the burial clothes off and then takes the time to fold them up, or at least some of them, these are wonderful details, if you pay attention, that Luke is giving us in this account of the resurrection. And so the stone is then rolled back. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes are empty and folded up. There are many witnesses. We have at least five women, Peter, two angels, at least two Roman guards, as we see in chapter 28 of Matthew's account of the gospel. And all of these including the Roman guards, testify that Jesus' body is gone, okay? It's one thing for someone to make up a story and spread it around. It's another for many different people coming to the same place at different times with very different motivations. The guards had everything to lose by testifying that Jesus' body was gone. In fact, they could have been executed for dereliction of duty. But they all testify to the same thing. Jesus' body was not there. It was gone. Like the cross, the tomb, and the grave clothes. Death itself was emptied. Emptied of its promise. Emptied of its power over all those who would forevermore call upon the name of the Lord. And that's part of what made this resurrection different than others, right? It's not that this was the first resurrection to ever take place. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we see Elijah raise a young boy from the dead in Zarephath. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises a young boy from the dead. In chapter 13 of 2 Kings, verses 20 and 21, the Israelites were burying a dead man in haste in the midst of a battle. They threw him into Elisha's grave, and it says the moment that the dead man's body touched Elisha's bones... The dead man came back to life and stood on his feet. If it were me, I think I would have grabbed a femur or something and taken it home with me just for future benefit. Get a little sniffle, grab that bone, man. The point is we see dead men resurrected long before Jesus' resurrection. And of course, we know that Jesus himself raised several people from the dead, men and women, before his own resurrection. So when Jesus walked out of that tomb, that was by no means the first resurrection. But it was very different from all of the rest because the others were only temporarily beneficial to the one being raised. Right? Death was still looming over them at some future date. Jesus' resurrection was eternally beneficial, however, to all who would ever follow him after that. Because the promise and power of death had been completely emptied through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now for all of us who follow Christ today, physical death, you understand, is just a beginning to the rest of our lives, which are now eternal in Christ. So, so if you think about this life on earth, in relationship to the rest of all of eternity, 
It's really hard for us to get our mind around that. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this life here on earth is really just like the entrance. It's kind of like the courtyard to one of these massive theme parks, if you think about it that way, like uh, Disney World or one of these massive theme parks. You know, when you get to those places, there's almost always an entrance or a courtyard area. And there are people there milling around. And you get out of your car and you walk across the courtyard to the gate, the turnstiles, where they let you in. And when you get to the other side of that courtyard and you go through the gate, through the turnstiles, you're into this place that is exponentially bigger and more amazing and wonderful than the courtyard you just walk through to get there. Right? And so we mourn the loss of our loved ones and family and friends, and we should. But you got to understand that they're just on the other side of that gate, that turnstile, in that wonderful place. And this life here on earth where we are, it's just the courtyard. This life is a simple journey. We're, we're just walking across the courtyard from one end to the other. And it's a short walk, by the way, for all of us to get to that gate, to enter into the other side. And yet there are people, even believers, who live their entire lives as if the courtyard is all that there is. Like this is all that there is. And we're completely missing the fact that this life on earth is nothing more than a short walk from one end of the courtyard to the other. And then we enter into a place of endless joy and wonder forever. And it's only because of what Jesus did for you and me. The resurrection of the Christ is the day that death became a completely empty promise. There's much more. Let's keep reading. Verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looked sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." Jesus walks with these disciples, talking with them about everything that has happened, and he points them right back to the scriptures. Verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, all right? As a result of the resurrection of the Christ, the life and teachings of Jesus were validated. He's going to prove his resurrection to them later that night, but for the moment, he simply shows his followers through the scriptures how everything that has been written about him was true. Certainly, we have to come to a place in faith, without a doubt, where we accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ as, as truth. There are multiple Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in great detail by these events, prophecies written hundreds of years earlier. As described by multiple eyewitnesses, these prophecies were fulfilled. We have the absence of a body. There's the work of the early church, which in and of itself is a compelling proof of Jesus' resurrection. There's evidence of changed lives throughout history. People who have completely devoted themselves to Jesus Christ. There's most definitely a lot that we can point to to substantiate the claims of Christ's resurrection. But the truth is, at the end of the day, arriving at the place where we say, I know that this is true, in the deepest part of me, I, I believe that this is true. That's going to require faith. There's no way around that. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But for those of us who've already come to that place, where we claim to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead and is alive today, that means we have, we have to now accept everything that he said and did and taught, if he really is who he said he is. If he was God in the flesh... We have to accept everything that he said and everything that he taught because his resurrection validates all of it. And yet there are so many professing Christians today who want the luxury of picking and choosing which parts of the Holy Scriptures are valid and which parts have become irrelevant. I'm not talking about, by the way, varying interpretations of theological doctrines. We're all human beings. There isn't one of us who has it all right. So there are different understandings of Scripture, and I, I get that. I'm talking about professing believers who outright reject the validity of entire portions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are believers who say that they only hold the red letters, the words of Jesus himself as pure truth, and everything else in the Bible, including the Old Testament, as open for debate. The problem with that is many of those red letters uphold the veracity of the rest of Scripture and certainly Old Testament Scripture, which Jesus constantly referred to when he spoke. If you go back and cross-reference the words of Christ, I challenge you to try and find very many of those where he wasn't quoting or referencing Old Testament Scripture. He constantly referred to Scripture when he spoke. We don't have close to enough time to delve into that this morning. But Jesus' position on, on Old Testament Scripture's validity is well documented and extensive. But just to give you an idea, in Matthew 5, 18 and 19, he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest or great in the kingdom of heaven. And then in Luke 16, 19 through 31, Jesus is telling a story about a rich man who died and was being tormented in Hades. He calls out to Abraham, the man being tormented, and asks him to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn the rich man's brother to live differently so that they won't end up like him. 
And according to Jesus, Abraham responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see. In other words, if your heart is hardened to the word of God already, you won't even believe him if you see someone rise from the dead because the two are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. The risen Christ is the fulfillment of the word of God. You cannot choose one and reject the other. That position is irreconcilable, especially in Scripture and in Jesus' teachings itself. And yet we see that happening even today. People who don't believe in the whole counsel of God, who don't accept all of his word, and yet they claim to be Christians. But Jesus himself, according to verse 27, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, it says, the things concerning himself. And of course, at that moment, the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. So when it says all the scriptures concerning himself, he's talking about Old Testament scripture, right? That all points to Jesus himself. So if we say that we accept the resurrection, then we must accept his word, all of his word and all that it says about him and all of his teachings, which of course has profound ramifications for our lives today. And if I may be this bold, I believe a part of the reason that we don't see more of the church, at least in America, living radically for Christ today is because we don't accept all of the word of God as truth. Many have chosen to accept bits and pieces that suit their own preferences and then reject the bits that make them uncomfortable. But Jesus' resurrection validated all of his word. And therefore, we must, if we're going to follow him, we must accept it on the whole. Let's keep reading in our story, verses 28 through 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he, uh, he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we see that Jesus was revealed to them alive and well, both through the scriptures, as pointed out in verse 32, and of course supernaturally, as pointed out in verse 31. And so as a result of the resurrection of the Christ, Jesus' disciples now become his devotees major shift. We won't spend a lot of time on this point because it's essentially what the video was talking about earlier. But I want to be sure not to overlook or underestimate the power of this as evidence for the resurrection. This is very compelling evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Right? As he's being led away to die, his disciples panicked and fled in every direction. They were literally running for their lives, so deathly afraid of being mentioned in the same sentence as Jesus. We see Peter, one of the closest to him, deny him three times, even swearing and calling down curses on himself. Clearly, Peter and the others believed wholeheartedly that this was the end of Jesus. Now, fast forward to the book of Acts and beyond. 
And we see these same disciples do a complete 180. They're radically preaching the gospel, including the resurrection, fearlessly defending the faith, willing to, and for most of them, actually dying in the most horrible ways for the sake of the gospel. What was the difference from the time Jesus was led away to die to the book of Acts and beyond? How are they now, all of them, completely fearless about preaching and defending the gospel? It was the resurrection and what came of it. That was the difference. That is what turned them from disciples to devotees, men and women completely devoted to advancing the kingdom of God, to promote Jesus as risen and alive and well and ruling and reigning in their lives, no matter the consequences to them personally. You see, if Jesus had stayed dead, they would have stayed in hiding. Okay, if we go back to our text in verse 17, we know that these two followers of Christ, Cleopas and probably his wife, Mary, we don't know for sure, <clears throat> we know for certain that they were sad. And then in verse 21, clearly confused about everything that has happened. And then verses 28 and 29 says they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly to stay for it's toward the end of the day, is now far spent. And although it's not explicitly stated here, there was certainly still a very real danger for followers of Christ to be out walking around at this point. They were being hunted. And so they urged Jesus to stay with them, probably for that reason and without a doubt, because of the way that he opened the scriptures to them. So the disciples at this point are still sad, still confused, still afraid. We don't see any of them going around boldly preaching the gospel. When does that change? It's after Jesus is revealed to them through the scriptures and also through supernatural revelation. Right? You could possibly understand one or two, maybe. If Jesus had not appeared to them, maybe one or two throwing caution to the wind, going a little crazy and going out and spreading the teachings of Christ as if he had risen. But the fact that every single one of them was running scared and sad and confused. And then after witnessing him alive and well, they go out and boldly proclaim Christ to all the nations, which involved the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, by the way, which we'll talk about in a moment. But just the fact that every one of them made that radical shift in disposition and in attitude in their actions concerning the gospel, that alone is very compelling evidence that the resurrection of Jesus actually occurred because it testifies that those disciples had very real revelation of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion, both through his word and supernaturally as he appeared and disappeared before them, continuing to teach and encourage them several times over a 40-day period. It's not only strong proof of the resurrection, it's a lesson that we really should heed today because we can teach and preach Jesus all day long, and we need to. But until we have a true revelation of Christ, both through his word and supernaturally in our hearts, we may be believers, even disciples, but we will not live the kind of devoted life that these early disciples did until we have a personal revelation of who he is in our lives. And by the way, that is only something that he can do in you, in his sovereignty. That's an entire sermon by itself, so we can't do that topic justice right now. But just to make the point, 
Jesus himself in John 6, 65 explained to his disciples that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, it's one thing to know about God. It is something altogether different to know him personally. And the difference is having a personal revelation, which he gives to us through his word and supernaturally in our hearts. And only then can we become truly devoted to serving him. And yet there's still one more piece to this puzzle, and we'll find it in the last part of our story this morning. Let's read together verses 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, they showed him his hands, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So the revelation of Jesus to his disciples is now certain, but there's one piece left in order for them to be able to carry out the work that he's assigned them to do. All right, as a result of the resurrection of the Christ, our future was secured. And of course, when we talk about our future being secured in the context of Christ's death as believers, we're usually referring to our eternal security after this life, right? Dying and going to heaven and living forever, which is awesome. We should talk about that and tell other people about that. And that's obviously a part of what it means to have a secure future in Christ. So we don't want to take away from that. But it's not just that. There's more to our future in Christ than just heaven. After we die, there is everything in between now and then. And interestingly, that is the part of the future that Jesus focuses on when he addresses his disciples just before he leaves the earth. Notice he didn't talk to them about heaven. Instead, he says, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus was talking about their future on the earth, not their future in heaven. 
And yet when we talk about salvation and being a Christian, we tend to focus on eternity after this life, don't we? But that's coming and that's wonderful, but we are living in the here and now. And Jesus wants us to focus and engage with what's going on in the here and now. Right? He said forgiveness and repentance of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. In other words, hey guys, I have a job for you to do. Right now, this is your future. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, the only way you're going to be able to accomplish that assignment is by the power of the Holy Spirit that will live inside of you. So I want you to go to where the people are, but don't try to do the work in your own strength. Just wait there for me, and I'll give you the power that you need to do that work. You see, instead of thinking about our life in Christ as a, a membership card for heaven, we really should think of it as an assignment with eternal benefits. It's the greatest job in the world. It defines us and fulfills us. And yes, it carries with it the promise of eternal reward. But until that day when we pass from this life to the next, we need to get busy because there's a job before us to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to the world. We're supposed to be telling people about Jesus with every breath inside of us, both in word and by our actions. Our very lives and the way that we live them should proclaim the resurrection of the Christ and because he knows that we will never be able to do that by our own strength. He's secured our future, our ability to carry out his will in this life by sending us his Holy Spirit and he baptizes us in that spirit. In Acts 1.5, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That word baptized, by the way, in the ancient Greek that it was written in, it's the word baptizo. It literally means to overwhelm. In fact, it was most commonly used in ancient literature to describe ships that were sunken to the bottom of the sea. They were baptized. That's the word Jesus used to describe what would happen to us when we receive his Holy Spirit. In fact, it would be impossible, if you think about it, for someone else to get to that ship at the bottom of the ocean without experiencing the awesome power of the ocean that surrounds it, fills it, overwhelms it. And I just wonder, is that what people experience when they experience us? Are we so overwhelmed by his spirit that it is impossible for people to be near us without experiencing that spirit within us? That's how Jesus described the disciple, the believer who's baptized in his Holy Spirit. He says, that's how you will be in relationship to my spirit. You will become utterly overwhelmed by it. That is profoundly awesome, and that is precisely what we see happening in his disciples' lives from Acts 2 on, that very thing. And so when you begin to understand that as we're filled with this spirit, we're not only given the power to carry out his great commission, but that it will be impossible for people to even encounter us without experiencing that awesome power of his spirit that we've been completely overwhelmed by. That is when disciples become devotees. That is what moves people from merely believing in Jesus to following him everywhere he leads them. 
That is what makes people cast off their fear and sadness and confusion and live radical lives for Jesus Christ. That is what leads people to lay their lives down for other people. It's what causes believers to take massive risks in this life for the sake of the gospel because they have become utterly overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and empowered to do that work. Okay, the reality of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is certainly a gateway to our eternal hope. And there's nothing better than knowing that, but that's not all. For his resurrection not only emptied death of its power and promise over us, but it validated everything that he lived and taught, which means that now we not only have solid ground to stand on as we believe in him, but we've been given the power to act on that belief, that faith. That, my friends, is what this date in history is really all about. Okay, it's not simply about celebrating something that happened in the past. The resurrection of the Christ is not just a historical fact. It is a present reality. So why wouldn't we take full advantage of the power of his resurrection today? Because there's no other power on earth that even comes close to that. And he's offered to overwhelm us with it. To completely submerge us in that power. Why would we ever succumb to a life of fear? Or bitterness? Or confusion? Or sadness? Or status quo? Mediocrity? All the things that people who are still separated from God experience. When we have the power of his resurrection available to us by way of his spirit living inside of us. You don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to live in confusion anymore. You don't have to live in pain anymore. You don't have to live in sadness anymore because if you are in Christ and his spirit is in you, you're no longer separated from God. And I'll just tell you, if you don't have his spirit, his resurrection power in your life today, you can. You simply come to him in repentance and faith. And then he overwhelms everything that used to control your life by the power of his spirit that he puts inside of you. It's the power of the resurrection of the Christ. Let's pray.